Welcome to Inkwell, a podcast from Houston, Texas, for anyone engaged in the world of reading and writing. Inkwell is brought to you by Tintero Projects, which showcases the work of national and international Latinx and Latin American writers through readings and workshops, and Inprint, a literary arts nonprofit which, since 1983, conducts readings, workshops, and other programs to promote creative writing and reading and supports writers. Inkwell hosts Jasmine and Lupe Mendez, writers, educators, activists, and founders of Tintero Projects, will interview emerging and established writers from across the United States with energy, wit, and fresh perspective on what it means to ink well in this day and age. Hey, everybody, and we're back for another amazing episode of Inkwell. I am one of your co-hosts. Lupa Mendez. And I'm Jasmine Mendez. And this particular episode is being taped not in our standard area. We're usually up in Rich's office for our tapings, but we're going to be downstairs in the actual living room space here at Imprint. So this should be fun. And the seats are a little comfier. Comfy is, is not a word. Comfy? You're a writer, and that is and not a word. And I'm going to stop talking to you, <laughs> and then we'll go from there. Um, so today we will be interviewing um, Carolyn Forche and I'm so discussing. Excited. I am totally trying not to fangirl this whole time. I'm already we've sweating been around her, so it's but okay. Just, um, and so, um, would you like to say hi? Yes, I would. Hello, everyone. Thank and, you for having me. Yay! And so, nice um, man, okay, so... It's been a crazy week. It has been <laughs> a totally least. nuts of a week. And, and crazy sort of, and that's not a good word. It's been a, a wild ride for the last few months. Yes. Uh, our current uh, president is being impeached. Um, books are out in the world that probably shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and unfortunately, uh, this in this evening, we just did find out that Kobe Bryant uh, and his and young his daughter... daughter uh, unfortunately, were killed in a helicopter crash. So we are, you know, thinking about them and their families as well as the other victims that were, unfortunately, um, right? Because it was a, a teammate yeah. and another parent that were in the helicopter, and so um, yeah. we're we're grateful to be here for yes. sure, considering all of the things that are happening. But yeah. So with that, um, I think we wanted to start off like how and when. You're getting into what you think you're going to get into writing-wise yeah. or plan to do. And then it goes somewhere else. And then it goes somewhere else because <laughs> something else happens and you you are taken yeah, on a completely different... I think you and I both have been on that, on that trajectory m- at some point. M- like, the, like when we talked about like with that as an idea, I think for me it was most recently... Um, I would thought I was at the point at which I was going to finish the the next work that I was working on for the Houston Huelga schools. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking, I'll probably stop after I go and visit all the sites that were the original schools. Um, those of you that don't know what anything I'm talking about, um, I'm currently working on another book project uh, dealing with desegregation here in the city, but it's reflection of what it looks like with Mexican-American families here in Houston. And I end up figuring out uh, through help with uh, the Houston Metropolitan Research Center um, that one of the sites that was a huelga school here in the city that I was researching was also um, a dance hall. It was actually one of the major stop-off points for Norteño Tejano music uh, in the history of of Tejano music across the state. And so there's like this cross section of history that happens. And so we had to take a pause because the the actual property 
um, that was owned uh, is still in the family. Um, the godmother of Tejano music, Elsa Garcia's mother, is the owner of that space. And so a part of me was real shook because having listened to her music as a kid, um, it never dawned on me that her being one of the first females in this genre of music is a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, her mom would have let a bunch of kids protest and use her nightclub as a school. And so, like, I had to sit back. And now it's opened up this whole other thing of, like, oh, I thought I'd done, I was done with this, but I'm not anywhere close. Yeah, I've but got, when it like, comes to, like, research stuff, like, you're it's never always really, like, you that, just have right? to find like, a stopping point. There's, and so, like, <laughs> I'm, at that, just... I'm at that point of, of like, where is, where is this new road now taking me on? And so that's, it's also, like, a yay, but then also, like, oh, this other work, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I find that with a lot of my work. I'm never really writing about what I think I'm writing about, right? Or like you start with like, I'm going to write about this, this like racism. And then it's like, oh, I'm really writing about motherhood or vice versa, right? Like, I'm going to write about motherhood. I'm really writing about right. <laughs> racism <laughs> like, or whatever right. it is, right? Um, I mean, yeah, similar to me in the sense that um, with my own uh, sort of docu-poetic work uh, that I it was it did not intend for it to be that or that's not where I started. I was like trying to investigate, right? Like where um, anti-blackness like in the Dominican community sort of came from and just sort of trying to explore that within my own family and background. And then I ended up doing all this work on the Haitian massacre of 1937 because um, that's just kind of where I became like obsessed with that history and that, that um, all of that work. And so then I, you know, wrote this 80 page <laughs> manuscript, uh, on it all. Um, but then even going further, right. Like you, you right. You go into those rabbit holes of research, right. Yeah. And I started doing all this research, like just on the machete itself and on sugarcane fields and writing all these other side poems on, um, you know, sugarcane and, you know, the DR and Haiti and the border and all of that. And so it's just really, um, yeah, I feel like especially when, you, when you're doing work related to research, you don't really know like where the work is going to take you or it's going to surprise you. Um, but also more recently, I think because I spent so much time on that like really heavy work, um, I've started writing um, in genres that like are not my genre really or that in my mind, right? I don't write like I've written children's books recently and working on plays just to like... I don't know, as a clean slate, <laughs> like things that I never thought that I would be working or, or, or writing just to move away from, from that or because that's just, you know, my brain's not or doesn't want to be in the poetry <laughs> brain necessarily or the research uh, side of things. And so, although the play that I'm writing is now relying heavily on research <laughs> yet again. <laughs> I said one part and you had like Sorry. three different, that's awesome though. That's, that's yeah. it. Right. And you so, know, what it is. um, so coming into this, that like part of the conversation, it, it turns our eye to, um, part of the reasons that we're doing the interview with, with, uh, Carolyn Forche is as reading through the memoir, where the idea starts and where mm. this journey takes you is part of like the questions that we have in terms of like the interview for today. And so we're really, really excited to have Carolyn with us. Um, Josh, what's up? We haven't seen you in a while. Um, it's good to have everybody here. It's nice to actually be in the downstairs, downstairs area to area, do the interviews. Yeah, it's nice. So it's different. It'll be awesome. Um, so we're going to take a quick pause. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll actually uh, dig right in. Dig right in. Um, and so you're listening to Inkwell. And we're back. Um, you are listening to Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and, and Imprint. 
Why are you cutting me off? Oh. Hashtag patriarchy. No, I thought it was um, a cool way of like <laughs> divvying the voice. You know, I always just with you. Uh, and today we are interviewing <sighs> Carolyn Forche uh, about her recent memoir, What You Have Heard is True, a memoir of wit- witness and resistance. I thought you were going to say a memoir of wit and then just, no. No, witness <laughs> and resistance. Uh, so. Definitely not witness. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, man, okay. Bio um, for Carolyn. Um, Carolyn Forche is the author of four poetry collections, including Blue House, The Angel of History, Gathering the Tribes, which won the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award, The Country Between Us, in which, according to Joyce Carol Oates, Forche, quote, like Neruda, Philip Levine, Dennis Lerato, and others, addresses herself to the world, end quote. She is also editor of the groundbreaking anthology Against Forgetting 20th Century Poetry of Witness and a noted translator of poems as varied as Caribel Alegria, George Trackle? Trackle. I, I wrote the introduction for a book of uh, Trackle's uh, poems that were translated actually by Daniel Simcoe. Oh, awesome. So my... Translations were of uh, Claribel Alegria, two books, right. and mm-hmm. Robert Desnos. That's and I've awesome. just finished a translation by Fernando Valverde, mm. and that's going just accepted by Copper Canyon. So I'm really wow. Congratulations. Yeah, that's we're awesome. very happy. You yeah. know, we're over the moon, in fact. That's get that. Awesome. That's great. Um, Forche comes to Houston to share her memoir, What You Have Heard is True, um, Astonishing, Powerful, So Important at This Time, Margaret Atwood, which narrates her role as witness in an especially explosive and precarious period in the Salvador's history. And we are thankful that Carolyn is able to sit with us today for this interview. Thank you for talking about this. This is amazing. Um, sure. Did you want to start off with the first? Well, no, we'd like you to read a section oh, no or joke. a, a selection like, of you, okay. <laughs> if you don't mind, for our readers who, our listeners and readers, yeah, who may not um, may not be familiar with your work. Um, well, I'll begin with the way the book begins, which yeah. isn't at the beginning of the story. Mm, right, right. It's a scene that happens uh, fairly far along. Um, the period that I write about mostly here begins in January of 1978 and mm-hmm. ends in March 1980. Mm-hmm. And it goes forward in time, but most of this happened then. So it's not that it's the time before the war, uh, I would say. And it was the time that we, we thought of as the time of the death squads, mm-hmm. which was a, a period of political murders and abductions carried on by paramilitary organizations, mm. uh, some of whom were plainclothesmen um, from the military and some of whom were civilians financed by the oligarchs. So it was a difficult, dangerous, scary time. Um, and, you know, at the height of it, I think they were, they were killing a thousand people a month. And this was in the cities as well as in the countryside. So everyone was very scared and um, had, to, had to work, you know, through that and with that fear. And the death squads, you know, their objective was to terrorize the population and to instill fear. So they didn't simply kill people. They, they tortured them before killing and they butchered them after killing. So there was a lot of carnage. And, and these mutilated corpses would wind up you know, on a front doorstep or on the street or in front of a school or, you know, they were they were scattered around and they were also taken to the body dumps. There were two body dumps that were notorious places where these bodies were collected. So this, this first scene that I'm going to describe has to do with that and also with the 
army carrying out. Uh, it was kind. Of, it was borrowed from Vietnam. It was um, a slash and burn operation. You know where mm. you, where uh, everything is killed um, and burnt in the countryside. You know to they. They had a saying I remember that was really um, horrible, which was to you um, you kill the fishes by emptying the sea or something like that. Mm. It is near the end now. We are walking in a rippling heat of sorghum field, cicadas whirring to an empty sky. A man uncorks a water gourd. Another man leans against a spade. There is a woman here too, wearing an aproned skirt over her trousers. Hard light and the dry rattle of sorghum seed heads. I'm holding a spray of seeds. One of the men takes Leonel aside and tells him something, a secret like everything else. We get into the Jeep and without explanation drive to another place not far from this field. The campesinos, rural peasants, would have walked, measuring distance not in kilometers but in hours or days. What are we looking for, I ask. And as always, he doesn't answer, swearing under his breath through the haze of smoke that hangs in the air where the corn had been growing. We stop near a cluster of champas, shacks made of mud and wattle. One of them has collapsed and smoke rises from it. Wait here, he tells me, but I don't wait. I had stopped waiting for him months before this, but he can't seem to break this habit of telling me to wait. Smoke is rolling like a shore cloud along the fields just above the blackened stubble. We walk and when he stops, I stop. And when he continues, I continue. He palms the air to say, slow down or be quiet. I slow down and am quiet. When we reach the champas, no one is in them. No one is home. A large plastic bowl used for making the slurry that becomes tortilla dough is overturned on the ground. There is a child's t-shirt in the tortilla slurry. Behind one of the champas, it appears that several hens have been held by their feet and whacked against a stone. They are lying on the ground, one of them still opening and closing its beak. A hundred or so meters more, and we hear the whine of flies, the hissing and belching of turkey vultures, a flapping of wings like applause in the maize stalks as the fattened birds try to lift themselves. A flatbed truck follows at a distance behind us with three campesinos standing in the back. They are calling out to us or to the driver of the truck, but I don't understand what they say. I don't know what I had expected to see, but not the swollen torso of a man with one arm attached to him a black pool of tar over his crotch. I didn't expect that his head would be by itself, some distance away, without eyes or lips. The stench in the air is familiar, a rotting, sweet, sickening smell, human death. I bend down when I see the head, but I hear Lionel saying, don't touch it, let the others do it. At first I thought they were going to find the rest of the man, and place his remains in the truck, but instead they gather the arms and hands, the legs with their feet attached, and bring them to the torso where it lies on the ground. They set the head on the neck where it once had been. Then the three men take off their straw hats and stand in a circle around the man they have reassembled. They stand and one crosses himself lightly. 
the parts are not quite touching. There is soil between them, especially the head and the rest. Birds nearby hoping we will go away and leave them to this meal. The air hums. We walk. Why doesn't anyone do something? I think I asked. On this day, I will learn that the human head weighs about two and a half kilos. So that's how it begins. And then the doorbell rings. <clears throat> right. And the doorbell rings, and that was the beginning of the story for me. Mm-hmm. Um, a man I didn't know came to visit. Mm-hmm. I was 27 years old, and I was teaching freshman comp at San Diego State University. And I had spent the previous summer with my best friend, Maya, and her mother was Clarivel Alegria. So Maya and I had decided to translate Clarivel's book of poems, Flores del Volcan, mm. into English because Clarivel, while she had been translated into many languages, had never been translated into English, mm. um, just as Gabriel Mistral hadn't when right, she won right. the Nobel Prize. Right. So I had spent that previous summer in Europe for the first time, you know, living in Clarivel's house. In Mallorca, right? In Mallorca, in yeah. Deia, and... Um, And they had talked about a mysterious cousin right. all summer. And yeah. it was strange the way they talked about him. Mm. And I was always curious about him, and so was Maya. But they always shut up when we were around because they didn't mm. want us to, you know, we were young girls. Right. So yeah. young, women, what, young women should not <laughs> no, be around this stranger yeah. that they were talking about. But, yeah. you know, it was Clarivel's cousin. And they would say, well, you know, nobody knows who he really is. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant and he's... Um, motorcycle champion racer and, and, you know, the Pan American uh, motorcycle racing circuit. And he's internationally, um, an international champion in marksmanship. Mm -hmm. And he has a small coffee farm where he's trying to grow very high quality organic coffee, which no one was doing then. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, he, he, you know, that's it. I mean, I, I heard, I, one day I was home alone and heard a vehicle in my driveway right. and turned out to be him. That's so wild. Maya had <laughs> sent him my first book of poems and a little letter because mm-hmm. she was always trying to match make me with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I forgot about it. And, right. I, 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 and then, uh, you know, so there he was. But he was, He had come to my house with something very different in mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, randomly, and this is just what popped into my head. What was the pressing news in San Diego at the time? Like, what was what was? Can you remember like what the what was on the news? What was the thing that was happening before your life and world shifted to what this would become? Like. Well, the most pressing thing for us was on our campus. Number one, we were trying to save and preserve the Native American Studies program and mm-hmm. the, the, the border program and the Latino American Studies program, mm-hmm. all of which were under siege. Mm-hmm. And a McDonald's was moving on to the campus. <laughs> oh, wow. And, our, oh, and I said to the it. students, I said, you don't, do you want to go to a school where there's a McDonald's? Well, now, of course, those things are right. on all the campuses. Right. But, you know, and so we, we kind of did some actions on the mm-hmm. campus to, and we kept McDonald's from coming, yeah. which yeah. was kind of cool. And now I'm happy to say that those 
studies programs are still alive. Mm -hmm. And vibrant. Yeah, and vibrant, yeah. And it was, um, so that that was what I was all taken up with. But San Diego was a different place then. It was smaller and, you know, not as developed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, It was beautiful. um, And I was getting to know communities that I didn't, I hadn't known before, mm. you know. There's a, a very old uh, communities from Mexico in San Diego. They've right. been there for like two, three hundred years. Right. Wow. Right. So the neighborhoods are very, and I got to know some of those kids were my students. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for so me, is, that was my world. Yeah, yeah. but so this was actually um, sort of this kind of work was already in your trajectory. It wasn't necessarily something that was total. I mean, Going to El Salvador was probably not necessarily yeah. on your, I your life traveled. plan. But. but my father was a tool and die maker. I didn't really travel uh, mm. to other countries. Sure. You know, I hadn't. Yeah. Um, and even going with Maya, Maya had to persuade me to come right. with her that, right. that summer. It would be my first time in Europe. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I don't, I can't go to Europe. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't afford that. I'm not, you know. And she said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You're going to stay with us. So, right. Right. you know, it wasn't, no, it wasn't. Um, what I knew of El Salvador, I'd learned from Clarivel's poems. Mm-hmm. And, and that was considerable because she, that book in particular, she was writing uh, poems that came out of her youth in Salvador, a country under military dictatorship. In fact, the reason I went to, to Spain to stay with her was that I, left, had, right? I had mistakenly, well, she was in exile. Right, right. She was living in Spain. And when I took on the project of translating I thought, well, I studied Spanish in college. I bought a big, fat Spanish-English dictionary. I bought the 500 verbs. I thought that's what I had to do. It was going to be a problem of words, but it wasn't. It was a problem of ignorance. And that came from my education, which was very severely limited in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not taught about military dictatorships right. that were sponsoring, you know, in and Central you and South America. And in this memoir, yeah. too. Like, there's a right. lot of that, you know, just like, I, I was naive, I was unaware, yeah. my yeah. education was right. limited to what, you It was know. very limited. And, in fact, um, you know, they didn't, I remember that they didn't teach the Second World War, hmm. or they taught it up to, but not including, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Really? So the United, so the censorship involved American, U.S. American culpability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I um, I would say that when, when Lionel, you know, it took me a while to get the courage up to open the door and right. let him in. But he had his two daughters with yeah. him, so that helped. Yeah. They were little girls, and I thought, well, you know, little girls are wouldn't travel with a bad man, you know. And, and he he did turn out to be as mysterious as they said right. he was, yeah. but he was also earnest and incredibly persuasive. He spent three days and three nights at my house talking, and he began with the conquest of the Americas. Right, yeah. And he, you know, he drew everything while he talked. He'd covered mm-hmm. my table with paper, this white paper, and... Mm-hmm. Everything was a cartoon, so he started out drawing the conquistadores' boats, and then it ended up with the helicopters flying across the mountains. At the very end of this, he says, okay, my country's going to war in three to five years. Mm. And I said, well, how do you know that? Nobody knows these things. He said, well, I'm pretty sure. And he said he wanted a, a poet from the United States to come there. And, and you told, I mean, you told him, you're like, well, poets don't really have I told much him, I, in America. I said, why? <laughs> why? He said, yeah. because when the war yeah. comes, then you can, you can, you can tell the American right. people about, about the it. conditions mm-hmm. and you, you can explain the context and you can reach the hearts, which journalists don't do, you mm-hmm. know? And I said, well, 
you know, I don't know. <laughs> poets aren't v- taken seriously right. in that way yeah. in the United States. And he, you know, I explained all of that to him. That's mm-hmm. all in the book, the yeah. funny discussion we had about poetry. And he said, well, you'll just have to change that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he was very persuaded that this had to happen. And I had just gotten a Guggenheim grant, mm-hmm. which I did not expect to get. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's a in the yeah. book, but it doesn't so say. I, it was one. a Guggenheim. And I, had, I was told, you know, you have to apply three or four times, you know. And when I got it the first time, possibly wow. because, you know, my first book had come out and... Um, and they were starting to give things to women right, then. Yeah. Right. So I was a, a woman at the, that time, at that right time. But anyway, I had this thing. And, and you know, I still, I still didn't know. I wanted to go so badly. I wanted to take mm-hmm. his invitation. What he said was, I'll, teach, I'll show you everything, mm-hmm. everything. You'll work with women who are friends of mine. I'll, I'll you know, open the country right. up to you and, any, and you know, You'll learn a great deal, and when the war comes, you'll be back in the United States, and you'll be in a position to help. And I still was very, I was very doubtful about this mm-hmm. last, this role, you know. <laughs> right. I didn't think that was going to happen. But um, finally, after everyone told me I shouldn't go, and everyone said that I was, you know, going to get malaria or worse, and that I didn't really know this man, mm-hmm. you know. Not even Clarivel knows him, right. you know. All of those are good arguments, but he had he had said things to me that, that uh, really touched me, and I guess you'd say he pressed all my buttons, you know, <laughs> the button that didn't join the Peace Corps ever, mm-hmm. the button that wanted to understand Vietnam because I'd been married to a man who was in Vietnam and, mm. you know. So there, for all of those reasons and just for a reason I'll never really be able to explain, um, I went. And that all started on January 4th, 1978. And when I got to Salvador with my big suitcase, um, I, I landed at Ilopango, which was the, it's, you know, it became later a military uh, airfield, but it used to be their airport. Mm-hmm. And it was dark and full of soldiers. And, you know, I'd never been, I'd never been anywhere south of the border except Tijuana. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't there. And I got scared. I thought, not for the first time, maybe I shouldn't have done this, maybe not, you know. And then this tall, a North American guy came through the parking lot and said, hi, I'm John Taylor from the Peace Corps. Leonel sent right. me to pick you up. So that was it, you know? Yeah. And and that, um, what happened essentially was that between his visit in November and my arrival in January, things got worse, worse and yeah. kept getting worse so that the war that he saw coming was going to come much more quickly than he thought. And the death squads were operating much more, um, with much more um, viciousness Mm. and pervasiveness. And so things just happened quickly. Mm. And in the course of my time there, I made friends. What everyone always asks me is, why didn't you just go home? Mm. It It never occurred to me to stop. Doing the doing work. this, yeah. It just it. I didn't think in those terms. Mm. So uh, 
by the end, Lionel, as it turns out, was a very close friend of Monsignor Romero, the archbishop who was mm-hmm. assassinated in March 1980. Mm-hmm. And so it was Monsignor Romero uh, who said that I it was time for me to leave the country if, if I was going to do this thing of talking in the United States. And I remember that I didn't want to go, and I wasted my last hour with him trying to persuade him to leave Wow. And and trying to persuade him to let me stay. <laughs> How? And he said, I can't leave my places with my people. And now your place is with yours. Mm. And of course, you know, white Americans don't think in terms of having a people. Mm. I had never okay. thought about having a people. And I thought, I don't want to go back there. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to go back there because I had just lived in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but... But all of my friends said, you have to do this. This Mm -hmm. is what it was all about, you know, from the beginning. So a week after I got back to the United States, Monsignor was assassinated while saying Mass in the little chapel of Divine Providence. And uh, the day after the assassination, I was in the the U.S. Congress on Capitol Hill, and the House Subcommittee on Inter-American Relations was holding the first hearings on whether to resume aid to El Salvador, which had been suspended, and whether to send advisors to El Salvador, military aid and advisors. And I, you know, all morning, you know, the various human rights groups and WOLA and other people were testifying about horrific things, and, yeah. all, and in the afternoon they went into closed secret session with the CIA, and then they voted, and they all voted to do the aid, to give the aid, and to, and to send the advisors that they decided to call trainers because they didn't want to remind people of Vietnam. Mm. And that happened the day after Monsignor was right. killed. They couldn't even suspend or postpone those hearings, you know? Right. So, yeah, that was uh, it was a very horrible time. Well... Reagan was president, and Jean Kirkpatrick was there, and, you know, she had, you know, she was very uh, influential, and um, it was a, it was really not a good time for Central America. As you know, in addition to the war in El Salvador that was about to begin, the Contras were assembling mm-hmm. uh, against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, so mm-hmm. it was... Volatile. Yeah, very volatile. And so the objective became to try to build networks and organizations that would oppose military intervention, Mm -hmm. um, oppose it in the United States. If we could build up a critical mass of American popular opinion, you know, against Mm -hmm. this kind of intervention and possibly against supporting the aid, that would be the best thing we could do. Um, The aid grew exponentially every year of the war. Mm. But, the, but the American boots-on-the-ground intervention never happened. Mm. And, you know, we don't know, of course, we always felt like failures, you know, because of the exponential growth in the aid. But we don't know what would have happened if CSPES and Witness for Peace and the Sanctuary Movement and the Anti-Intervention Movement and all of those movements, hadn't the Solidarity Movements, hadn't actually been activated you know, and and organized. So, you know, my friends in Salvador say, you just you just can't know. We'll never know. We'll never know what would have happened. But um, so I didn't I didn't start this book for 
23 yeah, years. I was going to ask. I feel like there's a, there's a, I know that there were poems written about yeah, the, I the wrote, time. <laughs> I wrote seven poems and published yeah. them in a book called The Country Between Us. And right. that was a really controversial book because, <laughs> you know, you weren't supposed to write about one wasn't supposed to write about political things, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. El Salvador was, of course, inherently political right. because right. I hadn't gone to Italy or France. Right. But, you know, right. I had gone to Salvador, to and so, you know, anything yeah. you write about Salvador is going to be political, but also, of course, because the U.S. government was supporting mm-hmm. the military government, and they were mm-hmm. supporting uh, this effort that was suppressing, oppressing the, uh, the all means of peaceful resistance right. to economic and political repression. So I guess it touched a nerve and there were people who liked it because it was political, so, but, yeah. but, but a lot of people condemned it for that reason. And that mm-hmm. led to the, you know, the effort to open a space and I called it witness rather than politics right, and right. a social space between the personal and the political, you know, to discuss the works of people who have endured conditions of extremity, particularly oppression. Right. And what did they write in the aftermath? And I wanted people from all over the world, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all cultures. So I, I narrowed it to just the 20th century mm-hmm. and um, and began gathering the work. And I was restricted to, you know, work that was already translated. And anyway, so that all happened and wrote another um, couple of, books of poems, but in 2003, the poet Ilya Kaminsky, Mm. who was my close friend and had (laughs) been, I'd known him since he was 19, he said, you know, you've you've always known you had to write this book. book, You're not getting any younger, he said. (laughs) He said, you know, it's time, Carolyn, it's time. So I started it. And I was, I didn't know how to write a prose book. You know, yeah. I was a poet. Right, right. I was going to ask about Especially a whole years. long form, you know, book, <laughs> right. a whole book. So, you know, as a prose. result, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I know how to write sentences, but <laughs> right. I couldn't, you know, structuring a book, you know, structuring right, a book, right, like, right. oh God. So, because you have to know what you're going to leave out. What, right, you know, what are you going to exactly. write about? What? So I, I was writing about several Parts of my life, and and my friends said to me, "No, you've got to focus, focus. on Salvador because yeah. that's what everybody's curious about." You know, you wrote that Colonel poem. You know, that's what that's, you need. I, I teach it like there's so every many class. questions that people <laughs> right, have yeah. about right, right, that. Right, right, you yeah. need to write this, so I restricted it to Salvador. But then after you restrict it to Salvador, it's that you could. I mean, I could have written a thousand pages right. about things that happened there. So you have to learn how to pick things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I had to create the anel on the page. Yeah. And I had to... And I had to have a narrator who was me, not any, that narrator had to be as young and naive and uneducated in these matters as I really was. Mm -hmm. She could not be wise or smart or anything. So she had to be what she was. Mm -hmm. At the time. Yeah. And I, you know, there were lots of qualities in her that I don't particularly like anymore. (laughs) You know, she was a real, she was really hard on Leonel. So I would push back, talk about about patriarchy. Right. Well, anyway, I wanted his humor to be there right. and I wanted right. his and I wanted his mystery preserved because nobody ever solved that puzzle. Mm. And I wanted his you know, his heart to be there. So I made a decision, the one decision after about I wrote this maybe 3 times before I got this version. Yeah. And I put the others in boxes. Because they really didn't work. Yeah. Everybody just has to trust me on that. Yeah. But, but <laughs> Leonel um you know, I made the decision that 
the reader would never know more than I knew at the, at time. the time. Yeah, and I would never be you know, smarter or better or anything than I actually was. And Mm. I would stay this North American 27-year-old, you know? As the book continued. That was the narrator. And everybody else would get more time. Like, Lionel was the main character. Right, right. And Margarita is a big character. You know, there are other characters, uh, you know, but so I didn't really want to be a character. Mm -hmm. um, And I wanted to recreate some of the dialogue that we had. And and my memories of those two years in particular are really vivid. Hmm. Yeah, I was curious that was about my, that. That was my yeah. question. So <laughs> my question questions. was, like, in, in creating the memoir, what all did you rely on to support the the crafting, right? Like notes or memory or documents, photos, any artifacts? And then like, at one point she mentioned she had started sort of doing the shorthand notes that she learned like in secretary school. Yeah, I, I, I learned the Greg, Greg and, method, the shorthand. Yeah, my yeah, dad like, that. I had done some of that. and Because yeah. um, it's so, there's so much like blocks of, of text is, where it's, it's Leonel just sort of telling you, especially yeah. in, the, in the early yeah. parts where he's going through the whole history. Well, one thing <laughs> like, to remember um, is that Leonel would go over and over, over and over, over things. And over. So I would hear some of these speeches <laughs> yeah. like 50 times. Yeah. He'd say, let's review, you know, and he would yeah. go, go over and over story. the whole Richardson <laughs> story and everything. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was one thing. And the other thing was that um, I had boxes of, you know, pamphlets and flyers from, from the popular organizations. And, and I had my own notebooks that I had filled. And my husband was a photographer mm. there. He... Was he went all the way through the revolution against Somoza from the bombing of Esteli to oh, the wow. to the triumph, and then he worked for the Sandinista Department of Health. Then he came over to Salvador and and he photographed during the war. So I had boxes and boxes of his photographs, and he and I talked incessantly about El Salvador. And also, you know, I I knew the situation really well. So, and I had thought about it and talked about it endlessly. I went, you know, I went to 49 states during the war mm. to give, to meet with solidarity groups and give mm. poetry readings and answer questions about the Salvadoran military structure and why this and why that and the other. And even to rotary clubs, I went to wow. try to convince them that their tax dollars were being, were lining the pockets of Salvadoran yes, military oh, officers. So, oh, you know, that's right. what you say to them. You yeah. don't talk about human rights no. necessarily. You you know? So I start learning, you know, what is each audience going to respond to? Because to my, you know, great sadness, not every human being um, is aroused by conscience and right. and aroused by compassion. So you make different mm-hmm. kinds of arguments. Um, so anyway, um, I, I knew the material. I didn't have to worry about that. And early on, another writer told me, uh, a South African writer said, you don't have to put the history in this book. Mm-hmm. That's available, available elsewhere. Right, right. What you need to do is stick to your own story and what you saw firsthand. Hmm. and what you experienced. And that was the story that both Monsignor Romero and Leonel Gomez, the only thing they ever asked of me was to write this someday. Mm-hmm. They never asked for anything else, mm-hmm. um, nothing. Um, but, and, I, and so I, I knew that I had failed to do that. Mm-hmm. I was procrastinating because I, I knew that in order to write this, I had to relive it. I'm, yeah, I was going to say, want to how relive much distance it? did yeah. you have to take? Because even just that opening you scene is you so, can't write it's hard to read, it. much less I can't imagine experience that, right? Well, I don't want that scene to, 
um, put people off too much. No, no. <laughs> it, it, um, I, yeah. I worried about that, but, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of humor in the book yeah, and other things there's. besides that. But, um, you know, not not supplying all the minutiae of, mm-hmm. of how the history evolved. The other thing that I really wanted in here was the critique of the United States. Mm. This is what's really important. Mm. Look, the United States is not this panacea country that, no, you know, it, it, it depicts and itself that, to be. Yeah, and that it's depicted to be in, right. in books that people spaces, write right? about refugees coming here. If only they can reach our border and be, yeah. you know, well, no, uh, their problems begin when they cross our border right. in another way, you know. Yeah. So the United States was behind this whole war right. and, and the operations prior to the war. And they, you know, they pretty much lied continually. In fact, uh, General Bustillo just went on record. There's a news story in Al Jazeera about it uh, yesterday. He just admitted that they had done the the massacre at Morazan, which the United States had denied for a decade. They killed a thousand people in over the course of two or three days. And... um, you know, that's just now being admitted. So I didn't want to let the United States off the hook. Mm-hmm. And Vietnam enters in here because uh, my husband and also because Lionel was really interested in Vietnam. Right. Not, not so much in how the, the Americans comported themselves in the war. He was interested in how the Vietnamese fought the war. Right. Hmm. Tactically, strategically, you know, what were their military strategies and, you know, because his question wasn't so much, you know, what did the United States lose and why, you know, why did it lose? His question was, how how did the Vietnamese win? Right. Mm. You know, against the greatest firepower deployed against a people in the history of the world. So, you know, so that's there because I didn't, I wanted, I wanted that um, critique to be, embedded in it. And fortunately, I had Lionel to supply that critique. So it can't come out of the mouth of a 27-year-old, you know. I didn't have that critique. He had it, you know. Um, And so that that is, those are certain things that I knew I had to do. And I thought, the other thing is, it's very difficult to be believed in the United States Mm -hmm. because these kinds of situations are difficult for a lot of North Americans mm-hmm. to imagine. Right. And as Lionel says in the book, you know, it's beyond the realm of their imaginations. It's not in their interest to believe right. you. And it's possible that we are not human beings to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So these were the obstacles. And he said, you're going to have to overcome all of those, mm-hmm. which means you have to have credibility, et cetera, et cetera. So I put the little photographs in. Because for so long, after the Colonel poem was published and all of that, I got accused of inventing the death squads, and I made all of this up. Yes, in print, too. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to give you a few photos. I've got a thousand more if you want them, you know. But here goes. Yeah, here goes. You know, it's, yeah. Wow. It's like this man, Lev Parnas, who's <laughs> every day he drops another drops photo of himself with Trump, you know. So, oh, you don't know me? Here's Here another t- here's a photo right, when right. I was at your, you know, grandson's christening or whatever. Yeah. Mm. So interestingly, um 
and as the, the, the book's been out for a little while already, have you received any kind of similar pushback to the work that was out before? No. Um, no, it was, and it was surprising because I thought, you know, it, it's changed somewhat in the United States as regards poets writing politically. Mm-hmm. Th- thank goodness it is now not only possible, but it's, it's um, in the community of poets the community that I respect of right, poets, right. it is encouraged and flourishing. Right. And Amen. in fact, expected. Amen. And yeah. so yeah. that part, being a poet who writes about politics is no longer, you yes. know, uh, prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get pushback from, I mean, I worried about various things. You know, I, I tried to stick to my story and my experience through yeah. the eyes of the person that I was at the time. Um you know, but there's all of these questions about who should tell certain stories. Right. Then I realized that actually no one else could tell this particular story mm-hmm. and, and, and could talk about Lionel the way I could. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And if it's in some way not, not right to do it, I'll engage that when the time comes. You know, mm-hmm. I'll take that one. Right. I'll take it, you know. Yeah. But I have received tremendous support from the Salvadoran community and from others, you know, who I respect and who, and from uh, the Native American community. So I, I feel incredibly um, good about that. It, you know, it's been nothing but positive. Cheers you know. to that, that's all. And, that, and I gave the, the book to some of them before I published it. You know, I, I needed to know what they thought. And if there was anything that I should take out or change, mm-hmm. and I didn't get any anything except it was really very good. You know, there are Salvadoran American writers and poets who are really important to to be amplified now. Right. Claudia Castro Luna, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who is the poet laureate of Washington State. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jose Javier Zamora, yep. who has a book that really should be read now, um, a poetry book, unaccompanied, mm-hmm. and who is now at work on a memoir about his own crossing at the age of 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping you finish it soon, Javier. <laughs> and shout out, Javier. Exactly. Yeah. I'm giving you a shout out, a shout out. You're not getting any younger, Javier. And also... Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, who, Castillo, who's doing a book this Tuesday. Yeah, His book out. is coming yeah. out this Tuesday. Yeah, this Tuesday. And he, um, this book, Children of the Land, I haven't been able to read it yet because I didn't get an advanced copy, mm. but I read Javier's review of it yeah, on LitHub, so and I can't wait. I can't wait, and you have to have him on your program. Oh, that's we're gonna that's, try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So, uh, Rich and Krupa, if you're listening <laughs> if to this podcast, yeah, um, yeah. If you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they should bring him to imprint too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are books that need to be read much more widely, mm-hmm. and um, and I really want to uh, support uh, the works of Salvadoran writers, both in Salvador and here. Uh, so that the the other parts of the story can be told, including the aftermath of this war and what happened to all of the people who who had to seek refuge elsewhere Mm -hmm. and some who were internally displaced. And, you know, the population of Salvadorans in the United States was very small before Mm -hmm. the war. 
and then it, it became 10% of the population of Salvador yeah. right. wound up in the United States. So yeah. uh, those stories have to be told too. And the conditions that are um, forcing people to take the drastic measure of bringing their families to our border, mm -hmm. those conditions are the direct result of the war that was financed by the United States. The direct result of the failure of the peace accords and its promises, the direct result of the collapse of the judicial system and lots of other things that happened in the aftermath of the war. So we are responsible for creating those conditions. That's never said in the media. It's just, you know. Mm -hmm. Brushed out. It's, it's presented as. Oh, they're in a crisis. It, it, it's and really <laughs> important for people to, Americans, if any Americans are listening, I want you to stop and think. What would cause you as a mother to pick up your child in a little rucksack and walk hundreds of miles or thousands of miles and get on a very dangerous train? What would cause you to do that? What would cause you to, to make a, a dangerous trip that dangerous? Think about it. Things have to be more frightening for you and behind you than in front of you. And, you know, you have to try to imagine what would cause someone to have to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. I, wish, I wish the imagination would be better cultivated, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. among people in the United States, you know, to have some sense of what that would take. And it, sometimes, too, though, I, I think that, um, well, I speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for all women of color or, yeah. or, or try to point the finger at white women necessarily. Um, but I, I know just it's okay. even since. You can do both of us. <laughs> I, I know that, you know, one of the conversations, a lot of the conversations that a lot of my friends and I have had, most of whom are women of color um, and who've recently, you know, had children is just like, we, we have a plan B because of the way that yeah. America is right now. Like yeah. plan B and C. I'm like, right. well, we have family in Mexico. We have right. family in the Dominican right. Republic. Right. This is what's going to happen. Like yes. if I really see like shit's already hitting the fan, but if I feel like because I'm a poet and because we're artists that somebody's going to come in the middle of the night and take us away, like me and my child and my husband, we're leaving. We're getting the fuck out of here yeah. like, because yeah. it is, it's getting almost that desperate, at least for, for me, you know, I feel we'll like know November, how? <laughs> We'll know in November. We'll know in November. We'll know in November. The, 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 so interestingly, it was um, Rosebud Benoni uh, had edited a, uh, a snippet of like micro prose pieces uh, about maybe two years ago with the Kenya Review. Mm -hmm. And she interviewed a few of us and asked us to turn in uh, some stuff. And one of the pieces that I know I turned in was... The idea that as a kid, if something were to happen, right, like in my household, it was if my dad got deported um, or if something happened to my mother who grew up in South Texas, um, from a very Mexicano standpoint, we had three suitcases under the bed, 500 bucks in an envelope, all the passports and documents we could, if we needed to leave in the middle of the night, you already know, like, that's a plan, like, we're leaving. Yeah. And I... And my dad, well, growing up, my dad always had a briefcase that we weren't allowed to touch, and that had all of our important papers. And it was always like at the ready for because because as you know, we found out recently that my my dad in the DR um, in his college years um, was a communist. He was like a card carrying communist, and then he left Dangerous. the yeah he mm. left the DR um, in in the eighties, um, and then had no other recourse because there were no other jobs but to join the U.S. Army. And the whole time he was in the U.S. Army, he was like terrified that they would find out that he had been this card carrying communist, right? And so he just had always he always had a plan. You know, there was always like an and escape it, plan. And it, I, when I, I was writing the essay, what had come up was it was right after. 
after the election. Uh, and so like a lot of the kids at the school I worked at were, were freaking out about what would happen next. And one of the teachers came into my classroom, uh, a white gentleman, who was like, I don't understand. One of the girls is in tears. I said, well, what happened? Um, her parents gave her all the documents for the house and her brother and sister's like papers for if they have to go to school at a different school. Why would the parents do that? That's a lot of responsibility for a kid. And it was like, sit down and let me explain to you family plans. And he said, I remember distinctly him saying, the only family plan that we had was where would we go if there was a fire in the house? Where would we regroup outside of the house of the fire? Well, this is a kind of fire. And I, and I told him, I was like, I'm I, like me and mine and these kids, like it's learning to teach these kids to be as bombero, as firemen, as hell, when if something were to come through, right? And it's 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 that understanding within that phrasing, right? So all of that. that yeah, that where you're going has to, anything has to be better, right? Than like what you're leaving behind. Right, because it's, right, yeah. Um, you've been listening to Karen LaForche, an amazing, uh, brilliant book, uh, What You've Heard Is True. Um, amazing conversation. I literally am just sitting here like, oh. I know, I'm just listening. Memorized. Um, <laughs> mesmerized. Um, man, any other? No, I mean, we have our lightning round questions, which will help. We still, yeah. Oh, lightning. Oh, lightning. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> I don't um, know. I'm not that quick, you know? No, it's, it's okay. Sorry. It's okay. Um, so if possible, we'll, if you have one other snippet of a reading that you'd like to that share, I'll like um, close with that. Yeah, uh, let's see. Well, a snippet. I'll. I'll. Should. I should do one of those um, little written-in pencils because uh, those were the things that I lifted right at the time um, from my notebooks. Then. Oh, that's awesome. And thought, okay, this is how I'm going to. Let me see if I can find one that's. How many notebooks did you do? You, oh, did I, you... I have about 150 notebooks, that's all... but a lot of them aren't Goals. finished. You know, they're not. Um, well, here, this one is short. This is from a notebook at the time. This is the village abandoned, a pitted road stretches between burned shacks. In the mud, there is a saint's picture decorated with foil stars. There is smoke rising from the cook fires where women would have turned the family's daily tortillas, nor any from the fires that chewed through this village during a search and destroy operation. The people returned here briefly and held orange rinds wrapped in cloth over their mouths as they gathered the dead, listing their names and where this was possible, sex and approximate age. They poured lime over the assembled remains until the bodies seemed seemed covered with hoarfrost. A woman who had hid in the branches of a tree worked her skirt into knots as she told the story of what happened, but she had so rubbed her eyes from grief that all she had seen could be seen in them. In a different village, a man told the story of having pretended to be dead. In place of cries of the children for their parents, a light rain ticks against the corrugated roofs that have slipped into the wet palms of the ravine. In Salvador, death still patrols, wrote Pablo Neruda in a poem. The blood of dead peasants has not dried. Time will not dry it. Rain will not erase it from the roads. Hmm. Um, so uh, that was no punctuation because I didn't use punctuation in my notebooks. I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing without stopping. And so I just lifted them as they were. And, Out of the notebook. Yeah, because I was going to translate them into the, you know, the narrator's language and then I thought no um that is the narrator that is the language. narrator's language from then from and that that's time. what I should preserve as it was hmm. uh so those sections are called written in pencil and 
you know, there's a lot of gruesomeness in the written in pencil sections, but there's a lot of humor in the dialogue. And I hope, yeah. uh, <laughs> I hope it's more dimensional, you know. I hope that, I mean, the people who knew Lionel, including his daughter and her mother, they love the Lionel in this book, so I'm mm -hmm. happy, you yeah. know. If yeah. the family and the friends think I captured him, then, then that's it. okay. Perfect. You know, he was he was funny and exasperating, and he drove everyone nuts, and he was one of the most generous and selfless people I've ever known. Mm -hmm. I want to say this about Salvador. Everybody, I mean, when I talk about the, you know, the butchery, uh, yes, there was a e raw evil there, but also the most uh, beautiful, generous, loving, selfless people I've ever met mm -hmm. who would be willing to die for each other. And they weren't in just a few people. They were hundreds of them, thousands of them, the best people I've ever known. And Monsignor Romero was only one of them. Mm -hmm. He was a great saint, and he was canonized by the people long before Rome ever mm -hmm. made it official. Yes. But, but there were many Many, many, and many of them uh, didn't make it. And so, and there are some who are still alive who did. And, you know, it's, uh, so this is really for, for them and for the young generation. I had a lot of students over the years from Salvador come to my office at school and say, um, I heard you know about Salvador. Can you talk to me? Because my parents won't talk to me mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. The parents were trying to protect the kids, and, and also it was hard for them right. to talk hard, about it. Right. Let's yeah. face it, it was really yeah. horrible. So they basically wanted to know why they were here. Right. You know, why did my mom Still or my dad there. decide why, you know? I ask them, and they won't say. Yeah. So this is in part written for them to, you know, and for young, idealistic activists <laughs> to have a little bit of a sense of what it's like to go through a process. Right. Yeah. A process. Yeah. And be guided and, and taught by people who you never, you never came in contact with before. Yeah. You know? No, and I think that that's the key word, right? The, well, that idea of, of witness, right? There is witness and resistance, but there is, and I felt it while we were reading this book that, like you said, that I'm, you're, um, you're seeing through the eyes of this young. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the young publisher girl, wanted right? this and subtitle. So. Mine was just the title. Because uh. I don't really, I don't believe, I don't think I, witness is not really an identity, it's an action, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I don't like to make the claim of being a witness. Witness mm -hmm. is something you do, not that you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but I let this go. This was, there was other titles that were, for me, worse <laughs> possibilities, you know. Gotcha, but, gotcha. you know, it's a delicate matter, this sure, whole thing sure. of publishing uh, something like this. And right. I, I felt very lucky that I found a publisher willing to do this hmm. because uh, one thing that I've noticed is that books that are critical of the United States don't get much attention, much play, or, pu or publication mm, in, in the United right. States. Mm. It, and, um, you know, they're, they make people feel uncomfortable so, so I felt lucky in that regard. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. Awesome. Am, I, am I going to have Thank this lightning you. round? Yeah. yeah. So. It's, you know, it's the first time I've ever done a lightning round, but okay. We're, okay, we got some we'll questions. We'll take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back with our lightning round. Josh, do it'll, the, it'll be good. the lightning bolts on. <laughs> You're listening to Inkwell. 
And we're back. You're listening to, or you're, you can't watch because we don't have video, but that's cool. That's fine. Uh, if you're sitting in traffic or you're at the airport or you're at home doing the dishes, we're glad. Thank you for uh, capturing that. This is the third season uh, for Inkwell. Uh, we're here with uh, Carolyn Forche. We've taken care of the, the, the cool, amazing interview, and now the hard questions <laughs> in our lightning round. Um, so the ground rules for the lightning round is we will ask you a series of 10 questions or write about 10 questions. Um, your, uh, you'll have 60 seconds. You have 60 We've seconds. debated how long we want to give authors. but That's long. See, that's what I said. That's long. She wanted to do 30. 30 seconds. You got okay, first you want to do 30 can seconds? You do a, can you do 40? a third choice that once wasn't the two you were given? Whatever whatever <laughs> choice, sure. however well, long. Yeah, sometimes it's just it's a one-word answer or like a binary, like this okay. or that kind of thing. Um, and so we will ask you these questions, whatever pops into your head, as long as it's an honest answer. Although some people veer off and they don't really answer our questions. <laughs> That's true, too. Sometimes we've had one or two people like, people oh, I'm not like, answer I that don't one. want to do on it and no. Oh, uh, so, okay, cool. Um, okay, so here goes. Uh, first question Computer or paper? Paper, especially in notebooks. Mm. Like lined or blank? Blank. I call those two questions. What? <laughs> blank. You okay. blank. Like the little it. notebook, the notebook should fit in a pocket. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it needs to have soft covers so that it can oh, be can squished up. Yeah. Gotcha. Back pocket um, or yeah. front pocket? Well, I usually put mine in my purse, like, you know. That's but, better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like paper. Up. I like paper and I like writing in pencil. But someone told me that pencils fade over time. It does. Which terrifies me. So I'm thinking <laughs> all this time I should have been writing in pen and I didn't. So now my. My stuff is just going to fade away. <laughs> Actually, I found out that if you put like wax paper between the pages, between the pages, and especially like so, oh. some of the things that you've been writing, like actually, it, it keeps preserve it? it preserves it pencil? in kind of a wax, pencil, wow. wax paper. Yeah. Okay, I, I don't even. know I'm going to be cutting a lot of wax. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How many notebooks? Um, okay. Uh, question two: um, Because of the fact that you were you used a camera as you were doing the work yeah. in the memoir, favorite camera. Is what? Favorite camera. Favorite camera. Oh, I had a little Olympus. That's what I had. But now my favorite camera is my phone. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, how do you like your plantains? <gasps> well, I like them sweet and fried. I, I like yes. them, you know, sauteed and Maduros. sweet and mm. a little bit of sugar, brown sugar. Oh. And, and yeah, I'm... Can't I like. make them even sweeter than they already are. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Um, okay, so... In your travels to Salvador, the most beautiful spot that you encountered. Oh, my God. Okay. I think I would say, you know, there's these volcanic lakes. They're really beautiful. Uh, there's one of that's, uh, and, and some of them are in craters, you know. Uh, let's see which one I would say. The, the, the lake at Izalco is really beautiful. Oh, cool. That would be maybe, because I remember that was the lake. But, you know, there's so many places. The, the Wazapa Volcano, mm -hmm. the peak of the Wazapa Volcano is very beautiful. And on the coast, there are black sand beaches that are really strange because the sand is fine like sands on our beaches yeah, in the yeah, United yeah. States, but it's dark. It's mm -hmm. black. Black sand, yeah. 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 And so that, that's very, very pretty. You know, Salvador is a beautiful country. Uh, all of it is. So it has 14 very high volcanoes. Hmm. And uh, and and they're all they're all blue from the distance, and they're all beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, uh, Coca Cola or Cola Champagne? 
I can't have either one of them. <laughs> oh, no. What? <laughs> because yeah. of sugar. You oh, know. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know. Mostly I can only get this, which is Coke. So okay. that's what I do. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you have any? Um. Yeah. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mm, writing in the morning or writing at night? Writing in the morning. But I used to write at night when I was young. Mm. Young people like to write up, stay up all night and write. <laughs> Older people like to go to bed like at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and so I like to get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning when no one else is awake mm. and write then. Mm. You can that. write a lot you before can. everyone else wakes yeah. up because their consciousnesses are all quiet. That's and true. your consciousness can be by itself, you know? I thought it was just like... My mom life right now. <laughs> it's also that once you have a kid, so I'm like four a.m. is the only time. Once you have a child, yeah. writing at night is over. Yeah, yeah. So you have zero brain cells. I, <laughs> at that I point. like I like celebrate myself whenever I can actually get any kind of writing done at night. I'm such a night He's owl. A night owl. And I just I've always been a morning writer. But do I you write at night? I, I can does. write at night. I, I can can't. still write at night. You I'm, can. I it's it's. How old are you? I'm, I am I am forty three. Okay. The gray hair. You're old for. Writing at night. I, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. I'm like, what? but he's usually up so early and about for work that it's like he has no time in the morning. Yeah, you, you take yeah. your time wherever you can. Then yeah, that's yeah. that's how it goes. We all have to figure it out, and everybody's got such busy lives and a lot of work. And yeah, I respect anybody who finds any time to write right. at any hour. Any <laughs> yeah, hour, right? that's true. Oh, that's where the that's notebooks right. come in, though, because even if you're on the train or whatever, you can write in the notebook. You know, oh, you can cool. write while you're standing in line at the grocery store. Yeah. If you don't have your child with you, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sneak away. Put that down. <laughs> <laughs> Buy me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. uh, farthest, or I guess maybe even favorite place that your writing has taken you to? Oh my gosh. Um, the Cape of Good Hope and the Arctic Circle. Really? What? Yeah. Wow. I, I taught. I I went in a one of these little bush planes that they make milk deliveries and things. And I went and taught in little schools along the Yukon River wow. years ago, yeah. but it was up by the Arctic Circle. Wow. And it was so mysterious and beautiful. Of course, mm. the Arctic is melting now. But yeah, I've been, it's taken me really far. Yeah. And, um, and, and more, well, yeah, I would say those two places would be the farthest, I think. Oh, in Indonesia. Mm. I got to go to Indonesia last year for a conference on plastic pollution in the oceans, but they invited not only scientists, but musicians and poets. Wow. And, yeah, so I got to go there for that. That's and it was awesome. all about trying to find ways to... Uh, to prevent plastic from going into the oceans, but also to eliminate the plastic that's there. They're very mm -hmm. concerned because, of course, because of the Pacific gyre and because plastic surrounds those islands and it just washes up on the shore and mm -hmm. it's mounds and mounds and mounds of plastic. Awful. Um, favorite or preferred author you like to teach? You like to teach? Oh, Oh, well, that's, I like to teach James Baldwin. Mm. He's easy, though, because every <laughs> sentence works, right. you know. Like, you can quote anything, <laughs> anything. from his books, like and, you're, and, and, yeah. and you've got something, a real jewel, you yeah. know, and he's relentlessly brilliant, yeah. you know. He just yeah. doesn't quit. So <laughs> I would say that if I had to pick one author, but I used to teach Gabriel Marquez's uh, 100 Years of mm. Solitude every year, and I have 
you know, students who would name their babies when they eventually had babies after characters in that book. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and they would read it. The students really will read the whole of 100 Years oh, of wow. Solitude. They get into it. And people say now students don't read. They won't read a whole book. Yes, they will. Mm-hmm. You just have to give them the right book. You Very know? True. Aren't they about to turn? Is that the... That's no, the love book. The time of yes, oh, no, they are. The is it kind of, Love in the Time of Colette? I no. think they're going to do they're doing, de Soto that. Yeah, they I are think doing so. it as, an, as yeah. a Netflix yeah. series or something. They are. Oh. I believe so. That no. finally, yeah. They finally agreed to it. It's finally going to happen. Because his kid, right? His yeah, kid but it's going to be a series, it is. not series. one film, yeah. which is smart. I, 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 I thought about that. Yeah. I was like, no, this will actually work. No, you can't. You can't. Some two-hour movie. That's not going to happen. Yeah. But that's going to be interesting. I hope they do it well. I hope so. Because that book deserves to be, has to be. If it's going to be a film, it has film series, it should be a series. And it has to be really serious. And I hope it's being directed by somebody not from the U.S. I think. I'm not sure. I think like I think part so. of it was that it had to be like, right, like a plus plus Netflix yeah, I something. I, I, if this people talk about this film, they ask me if this is going to be a film, and I I only would want that if if it was going to be directed by somebody not from here. You know. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, I just don't uh, United States. Uh, they, Hollywood, they sensationalize they everything and, and uh, I think distort it. So, and also then certain characters would be more important, mm. you know, right. than the characters who should, should be, important. be important. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. Um, oh, you, we're still in lightning. And, there, and then we just went, so what's next for Carolyn Forche? Me, oh, God. <laughs> well, the paperback of the memoir is coming out. I'm happy about that because be, it's cheaper. Mm. And that comes out in February and in March, a new book of poems called In the Lateness of the World, which is my first book of poems in 17 years. Wow. Well, I was writing this. This took 15 years to write. This one waited for this one. And Mm. so this one was 17 years. So I'm slow. I've always been slow. I've only published a book every decade. But, Mm. you know, that's okay. Yeah. We can't all be really prolific. I'm going to follow that. Right? Yeah, follow that advice. Just tell people, that. well, you know, I'm working on something. Um, and, and what's next after that? I'm not sure. The future looks is strange to me. It's a little foggy, mm-hmm. you know? I'm still teaching full-time. I'm going to be 70 in April. Wow. What? So, yeah. I'm, say happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Because it's no. better to be 70 than not to be 70 that's at all. True. That's you know? true. Yeah. That's so, true. So I guess the next thing for me is turning that big milestone, you know. Exciting. So I'm old, you see. You're, you're no. still writing? You're still, still doing writing. I'm still yeah, writing. I just don't matters. know what I'm going to do next in that Something. way. I know that I don't want to retire anytime soon. I really love teaching. Yeah. And I had the greatest time with the University of Houston downtown. They're yeah, great. Really great the kids it yeah, it was amazing. We had a big uh, session, kind of a QA, and and then we all went to the little taco place that's by the campus. We mm-hmm. walked over there. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's really good. It's really, it's I can't remember the name of it. Um, I'm gonna, that's going to bother me. Okay, so we went there, and then we came, we almost didn't make the reading because we all got talking. <laughs> at the time of you know, we were talking, talking. It was yeah. just myself and the students and Daniel Pena. Yeah. So then we went over to the reading, and that was it. Was all just so moving. It was great. Shout out to UHD. You guys Shout are out to all of you who helped make that happen. At, at you call it UHD. Yeah. yeah. I was so impressed with the student body there. 
They're I, amazing. The, their engagement, their yeah. seriousness, mm-hmm. their, I mean, they were really impressive. Really awesome. impressive. Yay. Yeah. Well, we are glad you enjoyed your stay in Houston. You have a reading tomorrow night uh, alongside Carmen Maria Machado uh, at the I'm Alley looking Theater. forward to meeting her. Yeah. 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 Oh, that'll I'm be the first time you'll I've never awesome. met her. Oh, wow. No, no but I mean, I, she's read with friends of mine. I'm excited, you know, that... Yeah. Uh, Really, a she's a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Good night. All right, well, I think that's a wrap for uh, us. You've been listening to Inkwell, and we were not going to tell you who we're going to interview next because... Because we don't know. <laughs> that's not it, because we have three You're possible... you to say that, Chesmine. <laughs> we, we have a list. We have a list. <laughs> well, I can tell you, uh, including, including mm-hmm. Roberto, Tejada. Roberto Tejada, who's a professor at UH good, for the good. Creative Writing Department. Um, Addy Sai. Addy Sai. YA author, the uh, debut novel. And then uh, Outspoken. And Bean, uh, who is a performance poet here in the city. So those will be three of our possible interviewees. And uh, so, yeah, thank you guys for listening. And we will catch you next time. Catch thank you, you time. for having me. Thank, thank you, you Carolyn. Carolyn. Bye. Thank you for listening to Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and Imprint in Houston, Texas, a city with a wellspring of literary activity. Inkwell is hosted by Jasmine and Lupe Mendez of Tintero Projects, produced by Rich Levy and Krupa Parikh of Imprint, and recorded, engineered, and edited by Josh Walker with 150 Media House. Inkwell is made possible by a grant from the City of Houston through the Houston Arts Alliance and Imprint's other generous supporters. For more information, visit imprinthouston.org or tinteroprojects.wordpress.com. For feedback on this and future episodes, email inkwell at imprinthouston.org. We also invite listeners near and far to attend our readings and workshops. Until next time, keep reading and keep writing.